1: about God, people, and LGBTQIA. We're we're gonna look at what the Bible teaches and why God can be trusted. And in case you don't know what that that acronym stands for, it's lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer, intersex, or asexual. And I just, I gotta be honest with you guys, I, I don't remember the last time that I prayed this much for a sermon, that I have felt so much uh, uh, burden in my heart for each one of you as we engage in this conversation, because I love each one of you so much and I'm so incredibly grateful that we get to do life together, that we get to learn what it means to follow Jesus together and that as we're continuing our series, More Than Sex, we're gonna have this honest conversation And tonight, probably my favorite part of the night is going to be after I speak, when Pastor Glenn, Pastor Lisa, and myself come up here and just answer questions. And so I recognize that as I talk about a lot of different things, there, there's gonna be some questions and I want you to know there's a space for you to ask those questions. And so up on the screen is the phone number for our Q&A. It's the same number we use every week for Q&A, 909-713-4152. And these are anonymous texts. You can text us uh, your anonymous questions about anything I talk about. And we wanna try to answer them to the best of our ability. Now let me, Let me define some terms for us. When I say same-sex orientation or attraction, I'll use those interchangeably. Same-sex orientation or attraction is when an individual has emotional, physical, and or romantic attachments towards a person of the same gender. A little bit later in our time tonight, we're gonna talk about gender dysphoria. And, And gender dysphoria is a strong desire to be of another gender, which may include a desire to change primary and or secondary sex characteristics. But before we get too much farther, I want to say this. I deeply believe that the church at large has done a pretty bad job at having this conversation. In fact, I think a lot of, a lot of times people who are a part of the LGBTQIA community come into church spaces like this And they feel a lot of condemnation. They feel like pastors have done a lot of talking at them and nobody's listened to them. Which is why if you're in this space right now and you're experiencing same-sex orientation or attraction or gender dysphoria and you want to talk, I would love the opportunity to just listen to your story. To not say much, but to just listen and to hear you, and to get to know you. Maybe you haven't opened up and shared this with anyone yet. And if you felt comfortable, and if you felt ready, I would love to listen to your story. In fact, that's my phone number up on the screen. You can text me, and we can have a confidential, private conversation. Because I want to change how these conversations happen in Christian spaces. And I want to be somebody who listens really well. And so if that's you tonight, I want, I want to encourage you to consider texting me and, and reaching out. The second thing I want to say is this, is I want to apologize. I want to apologize and I want to repent. To any student experiencing same-sex attraction or gender dysphoria, who has felt like God doesn't care about you or that he doesn't love you because of something a Christian, the church, or myself has said to you. I've had very brave and courageous people who are attracted to the same sex or experiencing gender dysphoria come and share with me ways that I've said things that has hurt them. And I wanna be somebody who's quick to repent and, and, and on behalf of, of Christianity, If that's been your experience, if you've been hurt by messaging, I want to repent and I want to apologize for that. I also think it's important to say this next bit, and and I think it it will help us as we lean a little bit more into our conversation in a while, but but it's this. Having same-sex orientation or having same-sex attraction is not sinful. I'm trying to be real clear with my, with my words here. That having same-sex orientation or attraction is not sinful. In other words, just sort of waking up and realizing, man, I'm attracted to the same-sex. That is not sinful. In fact, as I've searched the scriptures on this, nowhere do I find anything in the Bible that says having same-sex attraction or orientation is sinful. Second thing I want to say is this. Having gender dysphoria. In other words, being um, biologically sexed one way, but experiencing within your brain and your mind that that your mind doesn't match the sex organs that you have or the sex that you were given at birth, that having gender dysphoria is not sinful. And I hope you can hear my heart. The reason I say this is because I have met so many people in the church who have same-sex attraction, who have experienced gender dysphoria and they immediately feel like just the fact that I think these thoughts, just just the fact that I wake up and have this is is evidence that God doesn't love me or that he hates me or that I'm disgusting or any of those lies. And my hope is tonight that that any shame that you've carried about that or any um, assumption that that's what Jesus feels about you or that's what the Bible teaches or that's what I as one of your pastors thinks is false. The Bible does have a lot to say about what we do with our bodies, what we do with our lives, how we act in the world, but same-sex attraction and gender dysphoria is not sinful. I want to tell you about four brave women who I had the privilege of sharing a meal with a few weeks ago. These four women came over to to Sarah and I's house, and we broke bread together. We we shared a meal together. We hung out. Our kids interacted. We We had a great time. Two of these women are in a lesbian relationship with each other. One of these women identifies as bisexual, and the other is an advocate. And as we shared dinner, we began to get to know each other a little bit, and then after dinner, we had a really honest conversation. In which particularly these two women in a lesbian relationship shared with me how damaging messages have been for them in the church. It told me about the ways that they've been wounded by people in their lives who have said the most hurtful things when they came out as lesbian. And these, these incredible women had the bravery and the courage and the strength to share their stories with me. And I was so, so blessed by what they had to share. And they cautioned me on tonight. In fact, they, they, they shared that they weren't sure if even talking about this stuff is a good idea because of how hurtful it can be towards people, people, people in the LGBTQI plus community. And as they shared their stories with me, I was so incredibly grateful for for their wisdom, and and, and I walked away from that conversation going, man, I need to hold this conversation even more delicately than I was anticipating doing before. I want to tell you about one courageous man A few years ago in HSM, this young man came up to me and and it was after a similar night like we're having tonight and he said, and I could just tell he had something he wanted to say and he said, Eric, is God going to send me to hell because I'm gay? Does God hate me? And I could just tell in his voice he carried this deep belief that because he was attracted to the same sex, God could not love him. And I was so grateful for the opportunity to give him a hug. And to talk with him and to remind him that he is made in the image of God and that he is loved by God. I want to tell you about one strong woman. This woman who grew up in HSM and and many years later came to me and said, You know, Eric, some of the ways that HSM and even you talked about same-sex attraction, they created anxiety for me. And I had the opportunity to repent to her and to say, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. Will will you help me do better? Will you help me get better? I need to say this to all of us here, but especially to the to those of us that are followers of Jesus. If you are a follower of Jesus, it is a sin. To hold homophobic, degrading, hateful, or dehumanizing thoughts, words, actions, or jokes in your heart. And to direct them toward anyone in the LGBTQIA community. The Bible does not support that way of thinking or behaving. And Christians must set the example according to scripture and Jesus' demonstration and definition of love. Now tonight we're going to look at a lot of scripture and i want to just i just want to be transparent and honest before you i'm going to offer my interpretation on these passages there's other interpretations of these passages what i want to do tonight is as as one of the pastors here at purpose church and as your hsm pastor who loves you and cares about you and wants you to have the closest relationship with jesus possible i'm going to offer how i see these passages but i am a broken flawed human just like you I've got just as much junk and stuff as you. And so this is how I read these passages. But my hope is that we'll continue to be able to discuss this within the safety of this community. Recognizing that this is a safe place for you. That if you are attracted to the same sex, if you're experiencing gender dysphoria, as much as I can, I want to help create a safe place here for you. To process that. To talk through that. My hope is tonight that, that you feel, in the way that I talk about this, that you feel a sense of kindness. I love what Paul says in Romans 2, 3-4. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet do the same thing, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? It doesn't even say God's right theology. It says it's God's kindness that leads you and I to repentance, that leads you and I to following Jesus. And so tonight, if I say truthful things, but if I don't say them with kindness, then I've missed it. Tonight, my goal is to not just say what Jesus would say, what I think he would say, but to say it how Jesus would say it. My hope is tonight is you also experience as I, as I communicate, that I communicate with some gentleness and some respect around this conversation. 1 Peter 3.15, but in your hearts revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. Mark Yarhouse, who, who is an expert in the field of sexual identity and sexual studies he writes this we have too many christians out there who are strong on conviction but embarrass the name of christ in how they relate to the world around them at the same time we have too many christians who are remarkably civil but you would have no idea what convictions they hold we need both convictions and civility and then I just got to say, this is sort of a pet peeve of mine, and I, I, I saw one of, um, a guy that I've really learned a lot from around this conversation is a guy named Dr. Preston Sprinkle. And I was watching him talk about this, and, and he pointed out something that I, too, have found to be a pet peeve. Have any of you ever heard that phrase, love the sinner, hate the sin? Raise your hand if you've heard that phrase, love the sinner, hate the sin. Now, I am so guilty of saying that, right? I mean, I said that two weeks ago. Like, I totally am somebody who has said that. When I heard him talk about it, he said, you know you know what's hard about that saying is it can just sound so judgmental. It can just sound so self-righteous. Like, you're the sinner. I've got no sin in me. I'm fine. I'm supposed to love the sinner, hate the sin, because I'm a sinless person. What he talked about was, you know, that, that doesn't work in merits, right? With Sarah and i's merits, I can't be like, man, love the sinner, hate the sin, right? And Sarah would not be okay with that. Instead, as Christians, we need to have more humility. I think it might be better to say, love the sinner, hate my own sin. I want to be the first one up here to say, I could out-sin all of you. I probably have. (laughs) That I've got more sin in my life than I know what to do with. Love the sinner, yes, hate my own sin, and together let's pursue the sinless one. I am not sinless. You are not sinless. None of us are sinless but there is a sinless one and his name is Jesus. And that's what we want to do together. 83% of LGBTQIA plus people were raised in the church, according to a recent study. 51% of LGBTQIA plus people raised in the church will leave by the time they're 18. Why did they leave? According to this study, 97% left the church for relational reasons. They weren't listened to. They were mistreated. They were isolated or they were lonely. Which is why I love the words of Dr. Preston Sprinkle, an expert in this field. He says, It can be easy to adopt a depersonalized posture, one that forgets about the lives of real people, a posture of argumentation instead of listening, a posture of being right instead of being love. It's why tonight I titled our message "An uh, An Honest and Hopefully Helpful Conversation About God, About People, and then LGBTQIA+. Because make no mistake about it, this is not a topic to be discussed. These are people that we are talking about. We all are people that we're talking about tonight. Now, I hope that primarily what I've been influenced by is God's word as we have this conversation. But I also want to be honest with you that there were four sources that I used a lot in the development of tonight's talk. The first one is people to be loved. And if you're looking for resources to to look into this conversation more deeply, I recommend these four. People to be loved by Preston Sprinkle, Understanding Sexual Identity by Mark Yarhouse. Preston Sprinkle in 2021 just wrote a book called Embodied Transgender Identities, the Church and What the Bible Has to Say. And then Mark Yarhouse wrote a book, Understanding Gender Dysphoria. Now, tonight I have seven big ideas, seven big ideas. I'm going to blitz through them as quickly as I can because I want to get to the Q&A. I want to give you guys an opportunity to ask questions and for us to dialogue. But the first big idea is the most important. It's why I began with it, and it's this. God is love. This is so concrete and essential that, that humans didn't create Love. Love was not a byproduct of human invention. According to the scriptures, the idea of love, the reality of love is rooted in God himself. God is love. But God isn't just like love out there. God actually chooses to express his love to every single one of us. In 1 John 3, 1, it says this, See what great love the Father has lavished on us. That we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. This word lavished is like a never ending, like fountain. Like, anybody, any of you saw um, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory? You remember Charlie and the Chocolate Factory? You lo- I love that movie. Think of that just never ending chocolate fountain. That's what's being described here. That when God looks at you, He wants to lavish you, not with anger, not with disgust. God wants to lavish you with His love. 1 John 4, 9 to 10 says, This is how God showed his love. So God doesn't just talk a big game. God doesn't just say he's love. God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. I don't know who in your life right now you're trying to earn love from. You're trying to earn their love from a coach, from a parent, from a significant other. But the scriptures tell this beautiful, overarching story that God loves us so much that he loved us. He loved you, every single one of you, so dearly and so closely before you ever even knew him. Before you ever turned to him, he turned in your direction. John continues, and so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. The very definition of love is God. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. He continues, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. The very definition picture of love is that your Lord and Savior, the the, the God who created you, died on a cross, taking all of your sin and my sin, taking it on himself, rising from the dead to say crystal clear and as loudly as possible, I love you, and I'll do anything for you. But maybe you're not getting it yet. Maybe you still walked in this room and you're just convinced there's no way that God could actually love me. Look at what it says in Psalm 139. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. Like God knows you better than a boyfriend or a girlfriend, better than a parent, better than a coach, better than any significant other. It says that God knows you. When you feel like nobody gets you, it's actually a lie. Because even if it's true that no person on planet Earth gets you, God does. Before a word is on, or uh, you know when I sit and when I rise, you perceive my thoughts from afar. Before a word is on my tongue, Lord, you know it completely. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? There's no place you could go that God wouldn't meet you there. For you created my inmost being. At your very core, God knows you better than you even know yourself. And he knit you together in your mother's womb. I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. But maybe you're you're going, I don't know, I don't know. Look at this next passage. It's all over the place. Zephaniah 3.17. The Lord your God is with you. The mighty warrior who saves you, he will take great delight in you. Some of you don't like the picture you see in the mirror. Some of you, because of something you're going through, something you're feeling, you just go, man, it's it's impossible for anyone to delight me. You gotta know that God has never for one second thought about not delighting in you. That God loves you. You are so, I just feel the conviction to make this, I just can't say it any clearer. You are loved. By the God of the universe who created you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. God's so pumped on you. He's like walking around singing. You ever been so excited about something that you just couldn't help but sing? When I go on vacation or I'm really excited about something, I'm just stepping around. I'm singing, having a good old time. That's how God feels about you. That he's singing over you. Psalm 36, 7 says how priceless. There's no price tag on it. You can't buy it. You can't earn it. You can't do enough to get God to love you. It is priceless, and His priceless, unfailing love is in your direction. People take refuge in the shadow of your wings. Here it is, students. God, really, 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 really. I'm, I'm a high school pastor, barely graduated. I don't have a bigger vocabulary. God, really, really, really. Couldn't think of another adjective. God, really, 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 really loves you. Close your eyes right now, every one of you. Close your eyes. No matter what you're feeling, no matter what's going on in your world right now, God sees it, and he really, really, really loves you. Now, you can open your eyes. And then Jesus, in John 14, 15, says this. If you love me, keep my commands. You see, there is no question in scripture there's no question in the Bible how God feels about you it's crystal clear God loves you the question of the Bible is will you choose to love him and Jesus says if you love me you'll keep my commands there might be some things that I say tonight that you go oh I don't know if I like that I don't know if I want that That doesn't make sense to me. The reason I wanted to start off with a long time spent looking at scripture about how God feels about you is so that when God calls you to live in a way that feels different from what your desires are in the moment, that you will know God is asking this of you because he loves you, not because he wants to curse you or take something away from you, or make your life miserable, but because he loves you. Jesus said, a new command I give you, love one another. To which all of us should go, wait, what? That, that's not a new command. That's like in the Bible all over the place. It's in the Old Testament. But Jesus says, no, no, no. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. In other words, Jesus says, I am redefining and redemonstrating what love is. That love is what you see in me, what you see me doing, how you see me living, and ultimately the sacrifice that I made. It's, it's why Paul said, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who, what does it say, who? What does it say, who? Who loved me. Who loved me me and gave himself up for me. And in other words, Paul says, Paul says when I think about my life, it only makes sense to live for Jesus. It only makes sense to think about my life in terms of what advances the kingdom of God, what pleases Jesus, how can I obey his commands because he's done everything for me? When you and I believe that we have saved ourselves and that we're fine by ourselves, it doesn't make any sense to follow Jesus. But when you and I wake up to the truth that we're broken, that we're hurting, that we got sin in our lives, and then Jesus says, I wanna take it all for you, it only makes sense to respond and say, my life is yours. I remember sitting at a park with a friend once and his hands were kind of shaking, and he looked at me and he said, I need to tell you something I've never told anyone else before. I'm gay, I'm attracted to men and I'm so scared about what that will mean. I remember giving him a hug and just saying, I love you brother. And I'm so grateful that you would open up and share that with me. And then he said this, he said, and I've decided that Jesus loves me better and more than anyone ever could. And so I've decided that I'm gonna follow Jesus, that I'm I'm not going to be in a relationship with somebody, with another man, that I'm gonna choose to follow Jesus in this area of my life, as hard as it is and as much as I'd wanna be in a relationship with another man, because he loves me more than anyone could. Big idea number two is this. Every person is sexually broken and in need of God's healing. Now, this idea, I get it, 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 kind of in our culture right now, it doesn't really make sense. It can even be offensive to say that. But let me just ask you a few questions. Have you ever fantasized about someone? Have you ever seen somebody... And, 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 and thought about them, not as a human made in the image of God with ideas and imagination and purpose and creativity, but reduce them to an object, someone that you want to do something with. Have you ever done that? Because I have and do. This means that I still have some sexual brokenness in me. Have you ever watched Pornography? Haley Newman gave an incredible talk a few weeks ago about pornography and the devastation. It's linked to human trafficking. The ways that it hurts and damages us and our relationships. If you've watched pornography, it's, it's evidence that there's some sexual brokenness in us. Have you ever had a sexual experience with someone who is not your spouse, your boyfriend, or girlfriend? Then, then you, you've engaged in something outside of what the scriptures calls good. And you and I have sexual brokenness. Look, it's, it's in the pages of the Bible in 2 Samuel 11, in the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around the roof of his palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. Now at this time, David was married. He was already married, and then look at what it says. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah. So the guy says, look, dude, she is off limits. She is already married, and then David sent the messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. David, already being married, David, knowing that she was married, Chose to follow desires that were not in alignment with God's will. In Leviticus 17, 8, it says, Do not dishonor your father by having sexual relations with your mother. She is your mother. I just laughed when I read this because Moses, as he's writing, he's like, it's like he's like st- stating the obvious, right? Do not dishonor your father by having sexual relations with your mother. She is your mother. Like, don't do that, right? Like, that means that people were actually doing that. Like, that was actually happening in the Old Testament, so much so that that Moses was like, well, we gotta include this one because people are doing it. Look at this. In 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, here's the beauty of the gospel, is that God's word doesn't just tell us about the problem. It's not just honest with us about the reality of our brokenness, but it tells us there's a way to freedom. There's a way to healing. And it says, if we confess our sins, Jesus is faithful. Now, now, again, I want to remind of what I said in the beginning. Having same-sex attraction is not a sin. Having gender dysphoria is not a sin. So I'm not talking about that here. What I'm talking about is acting in any way that is not obedient to Scripture is sin, and and, and John says if we confess our sins, Jesus is faithful and he's just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Big idea number three, I wanna blitz through these again so we can get to Q&A. Big idea number three is this. The Bible teaches a high sexual ethic for everyone. For everyone. The Bible teaches a high sexual ethic for everyone, no matter who you are attracted to. And here's what's crazy, maybe, maybe you, you see the world right now, and maybe there's a part of you who goes, man, things are messed up and broken in our world. Man, there's like sexual craziness going on in our world. You guys, it, what we're experiencing now is nothing like what they were experiencing in the first century. That when Jesus and Paul were around, there no, we, have, we have no idea the kind of crazy things that they were experiencing. And yet, even in that culture, the Bible holds a high sexual ethic for every single one of us. Let me show you evidence. First Corinthians 6:18: Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. It's not that any kind of sexual sin is worse than any other kind of sin. This is Paul's warning to us. He's saying there's something, there's an extra measure of pain and baggage and brokenness that comes with sexual sin. And some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. You slept with a boyfriend or a girlfriend and they promised they were gonna marry you and you were gonna have three kids and have a white picket fence around your house and then all of a sudden they got interested in somebody else, they left you and the pain that you still hold on to is evidence that that sexual sin can lead to a, a greater sense of pain. Which is why Paul says, flee from any kind of sexual experiences outside of the context of marriage. Jesus said, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. The Bible does not set this low standard like, well, just don't do these one or two things. The Bible says if if, if you even look at a woman lustfully, you've already committed adultery in your heart. Look at what Solomon said. You are my private garden, my treasure, my bride, a secluded spring, a hidden fountain. This is in the context of marriage. It's talking about the, the exclusiveness The protected nature of husband and wife. Look at what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. In that context, everyone would have said, duh, yeah, we get that. We've heard that. And then Paul says this countercultural thing. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. There's this equality and this mutual submission, this this sexual ethic of sex happening in the context of marriage. And so as you read the Bible, whether you're single, dating, engaged, or married, there is a high sexual ethic because God is trying to protect us because God loves us. Big idea number four, our culture has made an idol out of sexual and romantic relationships. Look at what Paul says, and this is not what you're going to see on The Bachelor, right? This is not what you're going to see on Love is Blind. This is not going to be the theme verse or the, you know, the, the motto that Tinder is going to use, okay? Look at what Paul says. Now to the unmarried and the widows I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried as I do. I would like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. I think a case could be made that the Bible actually prioritizes singleness. That for people who are followers of Jesus, that your effectiveness in the kingdom, that being a part of God's mission in the world is so much bigger than who you're sleeping with and who you're married to. It's it's about living for God's kingdom. But our culture right now is so obsessed with sexual and romantic relationships. Think about this question. Are you in a relationship? When somebody asks you, are you in a relationship? What are they asking? What are they asking? Let's hear from some of you. What are are they asking? Who are you dating? But it doesn't say anywhere. It doesn't say, who are you in a relationship? It says, are you in a relationship? In other words, our culture has literally shrunk the idea of relationship. It said, the most important understanding of the word relationship is a sexual or romantic one. And yet if we're honest with ourselves, there's a variety of relationships. There's a parent-child relationship. There's a spouse relationship. There's siblings. There's cousins. There's friends. There's coworkers and peers. There's fellow Christians, like in your life groups. There's even mentor relationships. Look at what Paul says. He says, so in Christ, we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. He's not talking about marriage. He's talking about Christian community that we are literally supposed to be so close to each other, love each other so well, serve each other, put each other's needs before our own in such a way that it's like we are a body completely connected to each other. Or look at David. David says, how the mighty have fallen in battle. Jonathan lies lies slain on your heights. I grieve for you. Jonathan was his best friend. I grieve for you, Jonathan, my brother. You were very dear to me. Your love for me was wonderful, more wonderful than that of women. There's no evidence that Jonathan and David were in any kind of sexual relationship. This is purely friendship. David says, look, the kind of friendship and intimacy and closeness that Jonathan and I shared was so significant. And I'm I'm gonna say something here in a minute that I think as Christians we need to reclaim. And this very much goes against the culture right now and the lie of our culture that we have to be so careful not to buy into. Because if you spend any time on YouTube, if you spend any time on Disney+, Plus, if you spend any time on Instagram, if you spend any time watching any of these dating shows, you will conclude that romantic sexual relationships are the most important relationship in your life and that you will not be fulfilled until you're married or having sex. But the Christian message is so liberating. It's so freeing. Because romantic singleness does not mean a life of loneliness. Just because you're not in a sexual relationship or a marriage does not mean that your life should be lonely. In fact, look at these biblical heroes who are single. Jeremiah, Jesus, kind of a big deal. Jesus, John the Baptist, Mary Magdalene, Anna, Paul, Lydia, The list goes on of these biblical heroes who had an incredible impact, who lived fulfilled lives and yet never had sex and never married. That is almost an impossible message in our culture right now. Big idea number five. God has a lot to say about our identity. I mentioned Mark Yarhouse earlier, and Mark Yarhouse says this. Instead of seeing the cause of same-sex orientation and attraction as either nature or nurture, right? That's part of the debate. Most experts today believe that there are elements of both that contribute to a person's experience of same-sex attraction. Mark Earhouse also says sexual identity refers to the act of labeling oneself based on one's sexual attraction or orientation, Common sexual identity labels include gay, straight, lesbian, and bisexual. Rebecca McLaughlin, in in this book that our student leaders are reading, she writes this, Professor Diamond at the University of Utah has found that while 14% of women and 7% of men experience significant same-sex attraction, only 1% of women and 2% of men are only ever attracted to other women or other men. She has also found that people's feelings can change over time. That many people have the same patterns of attraction throughout their lives, but some people start off feeling attracted to girls and and later find themselves attracted to boys or vice versa. There was a National Longitudinal Study of Adolescent Health. Again, a completely secular, not a religious study that surveyed 20,000 adolescents from 1994 to 2018. That's a huge gap and they found that 4 to 7% of teens acknowledge same-sex attraction and about 1 to 3% of older adolescents, emerging adults identified as gay, lesbian or bisexual. Now the Bible clearly teaches that humans, that you and I are gendered and that we are sexual beings. The Bible doesn't deny that. But this is so important. We're going to get into a little theology here, which is the study of God and and what he says. It offers, the Bible offers a deeper and more satisfying understanding of our identity as image bearers, as children, as chosen people of God. And the Bible calls Christians to make their identity in Christ their primary identity. One of the most important questions that you have to answer in your life is what will be your primary identity? Will it be the salary that you make someday? Will it be your education level? Will it be the attractiveness of your spouse? Will it be the amount of kids that you have? Will it be the place that you live? Will it be who you are attracted to? Now, all of those are identities. We can talk about ethnicities. There's lots of different identities, but the, bi- the Bible does not necessarily call us to deny the, reality, the realities of those other identities, but the Bible does call us as followers of Jesus to set our identity in Christ as an image bearer of God, as a child of God, as the primary identity that shapes the rest of our lives, that guides the rest of of our lives, I remember hearing we we had him uh, a few years ago, a guy named Paul Smith, who's grown up in our church and a part of our church. Paul, for as long as he can remember, has always been attracted to men. He prayed for years that he would not be attracted to men. In fact, he he even began he he finally just said, "You know what? This is how I am," and he chose to engage in same sex relationships he got to a point where he just felt like, you know what, this is not giving me what I'm actually looking for. He started to explore the Bible more in his faith and he, he began to pray more and he started to grow in his relationship with God, but he realized that deep in his head and his heart, he held a belief that maybe some of you hold. And the belief was this, that if I could just be attracted to the opposite sex, God would completely love me. So he woke up every day believing that if I could only be attracted to the opposite sex, then I could more fully know God's love for me. And one night in prayer, he had this powerful experience where he literally felt like God told him, I am not going to take away your same-sex attraction because I don't need to in order to love you completely. And he found so much freedom and this understanding that God loved him, that God cared about him. When I talk about our identities, I think of two verses, Genesis 1 to 27. So God created mankind in his own image, in the image of God. He created them male and female. He created them. See, our primary identity is that we're image bearers of God. So why should we respect and honor each other? Why should we treat each other well? Why should we not hate and murder and hurt and attack and bully each other? Why should we not allow any of those kind of thoughts or actions to consume our minds or our behaviors? Because every person is made in the image of God. That all of you are image bearers of God. And then in John 1:12 it says, Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. That when we receive Christ, when we begin a relationship with Jesus, we become one of his kids. We become a part of his family. And when you're a part of God's family, you just, you're overwhelmed by the reality that he loves you so much. And so Christians are called to hold these two identities. I'm an image bearer of God. I have value and worth and dignity, not because of who I sleep with, not because of who I'm married to, not because of how much money I make, not because of the skills and gifts and talents that I have. No, I have value and worth because God made me. And number two, I'm a child of God, not because of anything I did to earn my way into his house, but because of his invitation through Jesus. And those two identities, as somebody who wants to honor God and who wants to live as one of his kids, those shape everything about the way I think and how I live. Paul says elsewhere in Romans 6, don't you realize that you become the slave of whatever you choose to obey? You can be a slave to sin, which leads to death, or you can choose to obey God, which leads to righteous living. Thank God once you were slaves to sin, but now you wholeheartedly obey his teaching that we have given you. Now you are free from your slavery to sin and have become slaves to righteous living. This is one of the, there's there's many blessings of living in America, but one of the more incredibly challenging aspects of living in America is this, that when we think of freedom, we think that means I can do anything I want. And as Americans, we say, well, I'm free to do anything I want. I'm not accountable to anyone else. I can do anything I want. And we sort of add that onto our relationship with God. But what the scriptures teach is this, that you and I, Every single person on planet Earth is either a servant of sin or a servant of Jesus. And when you are free from sin, when you receive His forgiveness and you're free from sin, you're now freed to follow, to obey the commands of Jesus, to serve Jesus. Why? Why do we serve Jesus even when it's difficult and hard? Because we know that He loves us. Big idea number six. The Bible consistently commands God's people to not engage in same sex sexual activity. And I think it's really important because sometimes these ideas can be politicized. And I really love what Preston Sprinkle says. He says, It's not about being affirming, an affirming view on Scripture says that, that God's okay with same sex relationships. President Regal says it's not, it's, it's not about being affirming. It's not about being non-affirming, which is holding a position that it is not okay to have same-sex relationships. It's about being biblical. It's about submitting to God's word even if it critiques and offends what you've always believed. I just wanna ask every single one of you a question that I have to ask myself and that I wanna admit I don't always adhere to. But the question is this, are you willing to allow and to submit yourself to God's word for the direction that you will live your life? Are you willing to allow God's word to offend you, to even critique parts of your views or even parts of your lives because you know that he loves you and he sees more than you could see He's got an eternal perspective on life and culture. Are you and I open to saying, I will live my life in accordance to God's word. I will take seriously when Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commands. There are five passages in the Bible that specifically address same-sex sexual activity. And throughout the Bible, only sexual relationships between one woman and one man are affirmed. Now again, as I go into these, I need to remind you over and over again that the Bible does not say that it is sinful to have same-sex attractions. So any weight or guilt you're feeling, that's not from God. It does not say that gender dysphoria, that having gender dysphoria is sinful. The Bible specifically addresses lust whether it's towards the opposite sex or the same sex. And it specifically addresses same-sexual activity. The five passages are in Leviticus, Romans, 1 Corinthians, and 1 Timothy. I just want to look at all of them with you. We're going to quickly fly through them, but I want to look at them with you so you can get a sense of what they're saying. In Leviticus 18.22, Do not have sexual relations with a man as one does with a woman. That is detestable. In Leviticus 20, 13, if a man has sexual relations with a man as one does with a woman, both of them have done what is detestable. They are to be put to death. Their blood will be on their own heads. Now pause, hold on real quick. Right there, you're like, what did God say? What? I, I need to give you some context here. There are multiple places in the Old Testament where disobeying a law resulted in death. Here's a few. If you break the Sabbath in the Old Testament, in, Le- in Exodus 35, 2, it required death. If you were talking with the dead in Leviticus 20, verse 27, it was death. If you kidnapped or enslaved someone in Deuteronomy 24, 7, it required death. And there is no evidence in ancient history that Israel actually practiced this. So I think what God is saying here is this is so important that the way you and I live our lives matters because it reflects God. Old Testament scholar Dr. John Goldengay says, the inclusion of a ban on homosexual acts likely marks this as another way Israel was expected to be different. The cultures around them had accepted same-sex relationships, which disassociate sex from marriage and procreation. The Torah sets sex in the context of marriage and procreation. One of the things I think we've lost in our culture is, is a reminder that as Christians, there should be things that are distinct and different about our lives. That there are ways that we stand out different in our culture. Now, maybe you'd go, okay, okay, but Eric, those were in the Old Testament, so do we really need to follow them? We're New Testament Christians, we're saved by grace. Do we really need to follow those? And if they were just in the Old Testament, I would say, yeah, there might be grounds for why we could let those go. But three times in the New Testament, we see a similar thing echoed in, first, in Romans one twenty six to 27. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty of their error. Now this is interesting because this is the first time in the Bible that not only men but women are indicted as well. And that's important in this passage as I'll talk about in a minute. But what's cool is is God is not just here using Paul to specifically address same-sex activity. But in a few verses before it says, Therefore God gave them over to the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. Preston Sprinkle says Romans 1 actually condemns both gay and straight people, a point that is sometimes missed when homophobic Christians unsheath the chapter and wield it against LGBT community. The reference to sexual impurity here is not limited to same-sex relations. It's a general statement that includes sex outside of marriage, adultery, rape, and all sorts of other sexual sins committed by both gay and straight People. Now, one of the more compelling arguments, so a lot of people would look at these passages and they would say, well, you know what, that, what, what Paul was talking about there is different than what we're experiencing today. So some, some, some scholars would say, Paul was saying no to sexual exploitation. Paul was saying no to same-sex rape. That Paul was saying no to something called pederasty, which was a common practice in the ancient Greco-Roman world that Paul wrote in, which was where an older man would have sexual relations with with a teenage boy as a weird kind of perverted mentorship. And so some scholars will say that is what Paul was critiquing. Paul was critiquing rape, exploitation, and pederasty. He was not critiquing what we have today being monogamous, committed, adult, consensual, equal status with each other, same-sex relationships. The problem with that line of thinking is it's just not intellectually honest. It's just not historically honest. Preston Sprinkle says, many affirming scholars will counter by pointing to pederasty as the premier image of what Paul had in mind when he forbade same-sex activity. While affirming scholars are right to point out that pederasty, adult men having sex with teenage boys, was the most common form of same-sex relations in the Greco-Roman world, the truth is it was not the only kind. In your notes, we're not gonna spend a lot of time on this, but in your notes, I've assembled just 10 examples These are just 10 examples that were well-known, common in the world that Paul was writing in at the time that Paul lived, 10 examples of historical and fictional characters who had same-sex relationships with people of the equal status they were in. Some of them married to each other, some of them women with women, some of them men with men. Preston Sprinkle gets into the specific language that Paul uses here in this passage, the Greek, which is what this passage was written in. Parapheisen, which is against nature or unnatural, which is what the verse uses, was simply stock language used by other Roman and Jewish writers to condemn same-sex relations. Extramarital or marital, consensual or non-consensual, pederastic or peer, paraphysin was used to critique same-sex relations as against the design of nature. Or, in Paul's view, against the design and intention of the Creator. And I can't say this enough. Again, it's the critiquing of practicing. It's not the critiquing of having same sex attraction, but practicing. The fact that Paul uses paraphysin in a context, Romans 1, saturated with allusions to Genesis 1 to 2, suggests that this meaning is most likely what Paul had in mind. The next passage in 1 Corinthians 6 says, Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanders, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Some people think, oh man, the Bible just picks on people who are attracted to the same sex. Not at all. The Bible addresses all kinds of practices of sin. And then look what he says. And this is what some of you were, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. It goes back to that idea that there's always forgiveness, there's always grace. Dr. Paul Actemeyer says this. The word for men who have sex with men in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 is arson which is a general term for men who engage in same-sex intercourse. Although the word arsentoini appears nowhere in Greek literature prior to Paul's use of it, it is evidently a rendering into Greek of the standard rabbinic term for one who lies with a male. Paul used Leviticus 20, chapter 13, when he put that word together. And then our last verse, we know that the law is good if one uses it properly. We also know that the law is made not for the lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and irreligious, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, for those practicing homosexuality, for slave traders and liars and perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine that conforms to the gospel, the good news of Jesus, concerning the glory of the blessed God which he entrusted to me. Paul gives 13 examples of sin here. And he's just trying to drive home the point that if you and I aren't living in accordance with God's scriptures, with God's word, then we're not living according to the gospel. A big idea number seven is this. Gender dysphoria is real and should be taken seriously. And we are gonna pick up that conversation next Wednesday. Here's what I wanna do right now. I wanna end with, if we, can slip, if we can skip all the way to the end, I want to end with the very last scripture in Matthew chapter 10. In Matthew chapter 10, it says this. Are not two sparrows sold for one penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside your father's care. And even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid you are worth more than many sparrows. I don't know where any of you are at right now and exactly what you're feeling, my hope is you're not feeling shame or guilt, but that you know that God cares. He cares so much about a sparrow. You can't even buy a single sparrow. Back in this day, one penny got you two sparrows. So this was the most uh, you know, uh, uh, undervalued thing in their culture. And yet Jesus says, God knows every single sparrow. He knows every hair on your head. You are worth everything to him. Next, next Wednesday, we're gonna have some amazing storytellers who are gonna share with you their experiences with same-sex attraction. And then we're gonna have a family member of somebody who's transgender get up and share a little bit of their story. And I'm gonna do a little bit more talking about gender dysphoria and why it is real and must be taken seriously. But I wanna make sure we get to your questions. So can we go to the text message slide? I wanna encourage you to get out your phones right now to get out your phones and whatever questions you have, this number is gonna be up the entire time we're talking. Any questions you have about anything I talked about, anything related to uh, same sex attraction, we'll, we'll save gender dysphoria for next week. Um, but while you're texting your questions, again, to that anonymous number, while you're texting in your questions, uh, let's go ahead and welcome up our panel. Can you give Pastor Glenn and Pastor Lisa a round of applause? <laughs> As they come on up, and, and our hope and desire is to just humbly, as best as we can, answer any questions you have. And so I want to give you a second right now to take out your phones. So you can ask any question you want. Can't guarantee you we'll have a perfect answer. We're going to try the best. We haven't been prepped on any of these, so we have no idea what's coming in. But our phone number is up there, 909-713-4152. Any question you have is welcome in this place. This is a really big idea. There is no question that you could ask that would, that would cause us to ask you to leave. You are welcome here. Every question is welcome here. We want to answer anything the best that we can. So go ahead and get out your phones. Go ahead and text any question that you want. And Pastor Lisa and Pastor Glenn have graciously, graciously been willing to be here tonight and to answer questions. So one more time, can we give them a round of applause?
0: Yes, thank you again so much to our panel for being here. Students, thank you for your questions. We're already getting a ton in. Thank you for your patience and your grace and your honesty. And I just want to throw our first question to Pastor Glenn. And, and we have this really, really brave and honest question. A student is asking, if God is a loving God and wants everyone to experience love, then why does God not want not, sorry, if God is a loving God who wants everyone to experience love, then why would he ask someone who is attracted to the same sex to not be married to them? Doesn't he care about our happiness? I told
2: you this was going to be easy. Yeah, yeah. great. <laughs> and, and let me just preface by saying it is so awesome that you all are here this is so countercultural. Everything that Pastor Eric's been sharing, um, and for you all to come to a place for where for an hour and a half you hear something that cuts against the culture of our time. You all are my heroes. Just by being here, you may not like everything you hear. It may annoy you. It may anger you. But you guys are my heroes. And then I just can't stop myself from this. Uh, I've been a pastor for forty years. And I've actually had some of the top youth pastors in America today um, on, on my staff over the last 40 years. And I'm telling you, you have the absolute best mm-hmm. here right now. Yes. There there, yes. there. are only a handful of youth pastors in America today that could do what he just did over the last hour. So uh, what a blessing. Thanks, Eric. That was just Phenomenal overview. Now, to the question, uh, and what a great, great, awesome question yes. is is that um, if, if God loves us, why wouldn't you allow them to do this? Now, the thing I would say is it, it's broader than that because God doesn't just say this to those that have same-sex attraction. He says it to those that are heterosexual as well that don't find that Marriage partner for themselves, and you know our church is filled with single adults that that will never marry, and and so I just want to start by saying, God is asking the same thing of heterosexuals as He is added, asking for those that are have same sex attraction, because there will be some I you know I'm not going to name them off. Obviously, I just think of all the ones, and my heart grieves, my heart breaks for them, because wow, they they just, you know, have not found that person, may never find that person, and yet, okay, just somehow God holding out on them. Now, I would go back to what Pastor Eric said. We got to get back to, we got to think correctly about this. Our world says that there is no happiness outside of sex. I mean, sex is it. It is the end all. Um, you just see this in every movie, TV show. Kimberly and I always, we, we are obsessed with British murder mysteries. Uh, if nobody gets killed in the first five minutes, and if the people investigating don't have a British accent, we're out of there, man. You know, we want, we want somebody dead and we want somebody with a British accent fi- figuring out who did it. And we're watching this show. We've watched it for four, end of the fourth season. We've been binge- binging on it. And one of the most beloved characters, she it is a very clean show, and she never had sex, you know, for four episodes. You never even know her to have anything. Four seasons, I'm sorry, thank you. Four seasons, yeah. 30 episodes or something like that, you know, 40 episodes, you know, never, never had. All of a sudden, last night, she had sex, and it wasn't explicit. They just go off, and you kind of figure out what's going on. Um, and, and I thought to myself, she's gonna die, they're gonna kill her off. And sure enough, she gets thrown off a five-story building at the end of the episode, okay. You know why? You know why the writers the writers said if she were to die without having sex, that's just too awful to imagine. That, that is just like horrific. Thrown off a five-story window, okay, whatever. But doing that without having had sex, that's just like, that's, so, that's too sad and and that's the way our world looks at it it's just like and so i would go back to saying sex is not the end all mm-hmm. uh, that you can have wonderful relationships and and okay they're going to tease me about this forever for saying this but you know i didn't have sex I was married almost 27 years old and um and i'm telling you don't tell kimberly i said this but i was Really happy before that, all right. I mean, that's not something that's not something you put in a Valentine, okay? I was as happy before you as until I met you. Don't you don't you don't put that in a Valentine? Wouldn't sell very well at all. But I'm telling you, I I I love life until the age of 27, you know? And oh gosh, I shouldn't go any further than that. But as you get older, you might. Have sex less frequently than when you're 30 years old. I'm happier now than I've ever been. Okay, so, so I'm just saying, your frequency of sex is not the end all of your happiness. You're happy. God has a bigger plan for your happiness than how often or if you have sex. Okay. Clean that up for me. Will you clean that up for me? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Pastor yeah, Glenn, you're in we love totally, you. We love you yeah. and we're so glad is this, you're here. Is this being taped as well? <laughs> yes, it's okay. very much being taped. You just found and, out and more about your pictures. pastor than yeah. you wanted to know. Okay. You're like, I can't unhear that. I just can't unhear that.
0: All right. Let's, let's go to the next question. Yeah. Thank, thank you, Pastor Glenn. We love you. I'm so glad you're here. Thank you for being here. Pastor Lisa, can can we bring this next question to you? We're getting a lot of questions talking about if God sees all sin as equal, then why does homosexuality seem to carry more shame? And
3: what should we do about that? Such a good question. Yeah. And I too just want to say it's so great to be with you guys. Thanks for having us here. And um, what a great job Eric did tonight. And I just feel so blessed that we can have conversations like this, you know? I think that because we all feel a little bit more nervous around some of these topics, it's important that we can have these at the church, you know? We want to be a place where we can dialogue about things like this, so um, thanks for being here and thanks for being willing to engage in some of these harder conversations. Um, You know, I think these conversations are hard because we don't always know what to say, you know, and it feels hard to talk about sex and homosexuality and anything, you know, in this realm because it's such an intimate part of ourselves, and, um, and that makes us really vulnerable and it's hard to be vulnerable and that honest with people and um, to share a part of us that feels so um, close to our identity, you know? And so that's why I appreciated so much of how Eric talked about tonight, how our our identity is more than our sexuality and how God sees us as so much more than just our sexuality. Um, But because it's so heightened in our culture, and in all the movies we see, and the music we listen to, and, you know, everywhere we go, it it's hard for us to remember that. And that is what is such a beautiful thing about choosing to be a follower of Jesus, because you get, like, an inside scoop of who declares your identity, who shapes your identity, who speaks into your identity, and what the truth of your identity is, you know? And so, when people come to us and want to engage in that conversation, it can be so challenging or awkward um, because they may not have uh, that same kind of connection with Jesus that you do in understanding identity. So I think that's why it becomes such a, a challenging issue because it's so tied to our sense of identity as well. Yes.
0: Yes. Thank you, Pastor Lisa. Awesome. All right. We are getting um, lots of the same question, which is asking, does homosexuality today, do we have a different understanding of it now than for those who are writing in biblical times? And so, Eric, I know you talked about pederastry. And is there anything else that you want to speak to that and maybe Pastor Glenn to add to that?
1: Yeah, I would say th- that's a really important question. And it's a question you should be asking is you know, the, the passages I read tonight from the New Testament were written 2,000 years ago. So, was Paul talking about the exact same thing we're experiencing today? And my hope is, and as you go back and look look in the notes, I believe that there is significant historical evidence, not Bible evidence, but historical evidence that... Uh, there were same-sex, equal status, not a power dynamic, but equal status, same-sex marriages and relationships between men and women at the time that Paul was writing. And so Paul, I think as he's writing those New Testament passages 2,000 years ago, he is absolutely thinking about rape and abuse and, and that practice of pederasty that obviously we do not practice today. But I think he also had in mind the kind of relationships and um, same-sex practices and and relationships that we have today. So, yeah, I think that there is grounds to say that Paul uh, had in mind similar situations that we have today.
0: Thank you, Pastor Eric. Let's let's go back to Pastor Glenn for this really tough question. And thank you again, all you students, for being so brave in, in your questions. We have a student asking, if a person claims to believe in Jesus and to walk with God their whole life, and yet they choose to pursue a same-sex marriage, or they seek gender reassignment surgery, will that person be rejected by Jesus?
2: Sorry, Pastor Glenn. Oh, no, and, and the pain behind that question, and and I, and I wish I, that was another thing I wanted to say right from the beginning, how proud I am of you all to be here. What a great set of pastors. I didn't just mean Eric, Claire, the whole team, Haley, everybody. Um, uh, but I wanted to say, I, I want to be so careful that this is not just theoretical and, you know, we're just talking in a vacuum. There are painful questions. And even back to the first one, can I just backtrack and say the pain behind that question, you know, I I just didn't want to come off as too casual, like, well, it's the same as as a single, you know, heterosexual single person that never gets married. You know, there's pain behind all of that and and a worry that they're not going to have as fulfilling uh, a life as that. Now, back to this, that the issue here is whether you have received Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord. That is the issue. The main thing to keep the main thing the main thing, and, uh, and Jesus is the main thing. Now, having said that, um, once we receive Jesus, we will all fall into sin on a regular basis all the time you know, just, it's it just, that's just part of it until we, get, until we get to heaven. And the best part of heaven is going to be, we wake up in the morning and you say to God, God, what do you want me to do today? He says, do whatever you feel like doing. And finally, it'll be the right thing. Finally, I just get up and whatever I feel like doing is going to be, you know, I don't have to fight what I feel like doing as opposed to what I should do. So we go. Now, I will say this word, and you guys can balance me out if you want to here. I want to be so careful here. But when a person chooses willfully, you know, there's a difference between falling into sin and just saying, God, you say it's supposed to be this way, but I have an act of my will is choosing to do this. It's going to be up to God to judge that. God's going to decide that, you know, it won't be me, it won't be any of us, God's going to decide that, but oh, I would just lovingly want to warn and just say, oh my goodness, be careful of that, be careful of that, I believe the Bible is a supernatural book, that's why we take these things seriously, you say, really, you're going to, something that was written 2,000 years ago, you're going to live your life that way, I don't believe the Bible is an ordinary book. The moment you say, well, I'm gonna pick or choose parts of the Bible, I'm gonna obey, you just make it an ordinary book. It's like any other book you read, I like that, I don't like that, it's like any other religious work, the Koran, the works of Buddha, the writings for Hinduism. I I believe the Bible is a supernatural book with between the thousands of fulfilled prophecies, the archeological, historical, scientific things that you just can't believe are in there, you just like that. This book is not an ordinary book. So I want to obey it as carefully as I can out of response to receiving Jesus as my Lord and Savior. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay.
0: Thank you, Pastor Glenn. We are, I'm just so grateful for that reminder that this conversation that we're having tonight, it's not just about topics, you know, it's not up here. It's, it's about people. There are people behind everything that we're talking about. And I want to give this question to Pastor Lisa. We have a student who is sharing with us that they just had a family member who came out as transgender. And so how do we let him know that we still love him and maybe very practically?
3: That's such a good question. And gosh, you know, that could be such a... A challenging um, thing in a, in a family system, you know I um, I used to have in my office you know those mobiles that have little people or little things, little objects all attached to them. and then when you pull one of the things of the mobile they all, it all goes you know what I'm talking about and that's kind of how a family system is or even a group of friends, any kind of group or community as soon as one person has something that kind of rocks their world. It it really affects the whole community. And so for a family that is trying to figure out what to do, that can be real challenging. And I know the team has lined up some great conversations next week. That'll be really helpful with that too. But I think one of the things that's gonna be super important is um, to maintain that loving relationship with that person. You know, I think, you know, when a friend or a family member first comes to you, you want to look that person right in the eye and you want to say their name and you know you want to like touch them if that's appropriate in an appropriate way and just say i'm so glad you told me and i care about you and i want to hear more about this before you respond with what you think maybe just take that posture of wanting to hear more of their story and saying i feel so honored that you would come and share something with me that must have been so hard to say, you know? And if we can be people that are um, sharing Jesus in in our posture and in our voice and our response, because that's probably a really hard thing to admit to someone. And what a gift that they've given you to share something that's hard and they don't know how you're going to respond and for you just in that moment to look them in the eye and love them and respect them as a person, as an, an image bearer of the almighty God, that you were made in the image of God. And I'm so grateful that we can have a, a conversation here. To start it off that way rather than by saying any kind of judgment or Well, this is what I think about that. Before we get there, let's hear a little bit more of their story. And that also gives you a really beautiful moment with Jesus, just to say, Jesus, I need some help right now. Jesus, would you show up for me? Would you give me the words to say? And then Jesus will do that. He will meet you there, and he will help you to minister grace and help keep that relationship um, in a, in a redeemed and healthy place rather than, than breaking it or fracturing it. Thank you, Pastor Lisa. Thank you. Um, We have time for just a couple more
0: questions. So I'm going to give it back to Pastor Glenn. This question says, I have friends who are in a same sex marriage relationship who love Jesus. They love the Bible and they serve in the church. And the question is, why wouldn't God bless this
2: marriage? You know, I, I would say, okay, I'll tell you why I don't believe they that, that God will bless it. Um, I, I, if they choose to go that direction, I would still love them, and uh, in, in the same way, I, I would love... Um, a Mormon, the same way I would love a Jehovah Witness, the same way I would love a Buddhist or, you know, somebody that chooses to believe differently on something that I consider something the Bible clearly teaches. The thing to remember is that you really have a choice in life. Every generation has this, and I'm 65, so that means 50 years ago I was sitting where you're sitting. And, and we all have a choice to say, who's smarter to run my life, God or me? God and his word or me? And, and the, the moment I say, I'm going to ignore this in scripture, but I'm going to do what seems reasonable. And please, can I just tell you, it seems reasonable. What you just said, ah, it screams reasonable. Mm-hmm. When I pull out the Bible, it, you know, the verses he was sharing, they don't seem reasonable in our culture. But it's like, am I gonna trust that God's smarter than me? Let me give you an example, because one of the advantages of being an old man like me, you can see things over a long period of time. So it was a half a century ago that I sat where you're sitting. 50 years ago, this would not have been the discussion. I'll tell you what was the discussion. It seemed like scientists had nailed us as far as the existence of God. That's what it felt like 50 years ago oh my gosh, you know, they just, the scientific evidence is just against there being a God. That that absolutely would have been the issue 50 years ago, not this. I'm telling you, 50 years later, with the latest scientific discoveries, it has never been more fashionable among scientists to believe in the existence of God than it is today. Completely changed in 50 years. Utterly changed. So am I going to just, Trust God now and see how that works out, you know? The other thing I meant to ask on the other thing was, and, and I, and I want to be so careful because, you know, Christians are accused of, you're just living for eternity. Think about it for a moment. If eternity is real, okay, you, I died tonight night of a heart attack, you know, which is extremely possible. Yeah, you know? oh, Okay. yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> No, Pastor, do not speak yeah. that into existence. <laughs> if you saw what I ate today, you'd say, oh, it's not only possible, it's likely. And so, so anyway, um, and I wake up, and lo and behold, it's like, oh, my gosh. It's like in Three Amigos. I don't know if you've ever seen that. Greatest movie ever made. Yeah. And they go, it's real. It's real. It's real. They find out they're not in a play. It's real. Oh my goodness! Anything where I trusted God that seemed to make me lose temporary happiness here, ushers me in to having lived an obedient life for eternity. I'm going to think it's it's silly. My my worried about this. Now, having said that, I know there's so much pain and hurt behind that. It's just so easy for me to say as a married. Heterosexual guy, you know, it's just so easy for me to say that, but in other areas, maybe I'm making sacrifices. You know, uh, we give a portion of our income, you know, away to people that are hungry. We've adopted four out of our six kids, you know, and and part of that has made life challenging and harder. Okay, uh, I, I would even maintain as hard as some things we've been talking about tonight. When I get to heaven, if heaven's real. A lot of this stuff makes more sense. And even not just saying, well, wait till you get to heaven. Wait 50 years and let's see the track record. And I think Christians are going to come off better. We Christians have always come off better. If, they, if, a, if a, a bridge got washed out and we're trying to warn people, don't drive over that because you're going to get killed because the bridge is out. Christians come off as annoying when they say, don't do that. Don't go down that road because the bridge is out We become off as annoying. You know when we come off better is after somebody drives over the bridge, crashes, and we run over to help. That's when Christians have always had a higher place in society. When we're wagging our fingers at people, we're kind of annoying. As soon as we're trying to help people, like I preached on the Good Samaritan on Sunday— then our stock rises in society. Is that too random? I hope that made sense. No, that's
0: so good, Pastor Glenn. And I think that leads us perfectly into our last question that I would love to give Pastor Lisa, actually. (laughs) Um, Sorry. (laughs) Okay, great. We have a question, a student sharing that, I feel ashamed to admit that I'm a Christian to someone who is gay because... They think that the church, that, that we hate them. And so how do I embrace Jesus' truth and love to my friends?
3: Yeah, that's so good. And, and I think some of that goes back to, you know, some of the things that we talked about, how you would respond to a family member. And I would say the, the same thing, you know. Um, if you can be known for the way that you treat all people, that you can be known for how you serve all people, you know, and that they see Jesus in you. I mean, that, that's like our goal, right? We don't want people up here. I don't want you to like see me. I don't want you to be like, hey, there's Lisa Tony." I want you to say, I see Jesus in her. And the only way you're going to be able to do that is if I'm doing the kind of things that Pastor Glenn and Pastor Eric and Pastor Claire talk about. You know that I'm like reading scripture and I'm thinking about it and I'm letting it impact and shape me so that my words represent the things that Jesus say. My thoughts represent the things that Jesus says. And so when we can do that, if we really truly are representing Jesus to the people around us, then you don't feel as much obligation to, like, represent the church because the church makes a lot of mistakes, right? But if we can just maybe simplify it and focus on, okay, I'm not going to represent all Christians right now in this moment. I'm not going to represent the whole church in this moment. My only responsibility, my only call is to represent Jesus to this person in this moment, And if we can do that, maybe that'll take a little bit of the pressure off, but it also gives you just this beautiful opportunity to do things a little bit differently than maybe the church or the Christians have done, because you get to be Jesus in that moment with that person. And I think the Holy Spirit will really work through you in a way to do that in a very impactful way. Thank you, Pastor Lisa.
1: Let me close up real quick. Um, number one, we are going to continue this conversation. A lot of the questions you've asked, I'm sure, uh, we're going to pick up next week. We're going to do another long Q&A, so you're going to have an opportunity, and we're going to specifically talk more about gender dysphoria next week. Uh, but I want to say uh, two, two quick things to you. Number one is this. If you disagreed with everything that was said up to this point, hear me loud and clear tell you this. You are still welcome in this place. That I want to invite you to the messy table. I want to invite you to this diverse community. There's some of us here who don't believe in Jesus. There's some of us who love Jesus. There's some of us who agree with some of the things that were shared. There's some of us who adamantly disagree with what was shared. And I'm just going to invite you to keep showing up. I'm going to invite you to keep dialoguing, to keep having these kinds of conversations with us. Number two, if tonight you're recognizing or maybe it's, it's just been obvious for you or you're going, man, I, I do experience same-sex attraction or I, uh, I do experience gender dysphoria. I would lovingly ask you to consider telling one of us who love you and care about you. And maybe that's me, you text me. Maybe that's you talk with your life group leader. The last thing we would want is for you to leave this place feeling alone, feeling isolated. We want to combat those statistics We want to create a culture and an environment where you can come as you are. You can disclose yourself, present yourself however you want, and we're going to meet you right there, and we're going to love you, and we're going to care for you. There's nothing you could tell us that would cause us to drive away or to walk away from you. And the last thing I want to say is this. The word of God says that Jesus created you. That means God is personal. And that as you leave this room, if you carry one thing with you, carry this. I am loved by my creator. We'll work out all the rest of the stuff together. We'll talk through it all together. We'll we'll work through it. And I'm going to learn and grow. You're going to learn and grow. We're going to figure it out together. But I want you to leave this place. No matter what you're going through, no matter what you're experiencing, I want you to leave this place remembering that you are loved by Jesus. And the question that we all have to ask ourselves is, if if Jesus really loves us, then what does it mean to love Jesus in return? You're welcome here. You are loved. You are seen. Let me pray for us, then we're going to head out, and then we're going to do it all over again next week. And so I want to invite you back and to invite your friends. And thank you, thank you, thank you. We love you guys. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for each one of these students. Thank you for these amazing leaders. Thank you for the grace and the patience they showed to even just be here, to have some of these conversations. And Lord, I know, I guarantee there were things that I said tonight that were way off, (laughs) that weren't in alignment with your word. And Jesus, I pray that these students would forget all of those things. But whatever was said that was consistent with your heart, that was consistent with your word, would each one of us leave this place thinking about those things? Would each one of us walk out of this room knowing that we are loved more than we could ever fully understand by our creator, Jesus? And would each one of us ask the question, if Jesus loves me that much, what does it look like for me to love Jesus in return? God, we love you. In your name we pray. Amen.